Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. It's going to uh, divide you. Uh, it's going to be a hot take, uh, and it's this. I hate, hate Nicholas Sparks. Uh, I hate him. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't hate him. I hate the general cultural idea of Nicholas Sparks. If you don't know who Nicholas Sparks is, he's the guy who writes all of those cheesy movies uh, where... See? See, the hot take is already taking effect here. Right? He's the guy that writes all of those romance films. Probably most famously The Notebook. Uh, But pretty much every year around this time... You can guarantee that a Nicholas Sparks movie is going to come out because it's the movie that around Valentine's Day, your wife, your girlfriend tells you, this is the movie that you have to take me to. (laughs) And you find every reason you can not to because they're terrible. I've seen better film on teeth. (laughs) Mmm, that's bad. I think the reason I I dislike the Nicholas Sparks movies so much, and this is absolutely a personal preference, uh, is that they sort of make a big deal out of the grand gesture, right? Like, Like every Nicholas Sparks movie, like, ends with the couple kissing in the rain after the big moment, right? And I was thinking about this today, that um, my wife and I have been married for 13 years, we've been together for 16, and I can't, I can't recall a time where I've ever kissed her in the rain. <laughs> because it's raining outside, get under an umbrella, get to shelter, right? The only time people kiss in the rain is in movies, and, and so, and what it's, what it's created is this. It's created a culture where you and I believe that love is always shown by these grand gestures, by these big moments, by, by this, I mean, right now, many of you, especially the guys, already feel this pressure. There's an internal clock. It, it counts down nine days, right? Nine days from now is Valentine's Day. And what am I going to do? What, 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 I gotta I got get my wife something. I can't like do nothing. That would be a bad idea. And our culture sort of puts these pr- this pressure on us to have these grand gestures. And it doesn't just extend to our romantic relationships. It extends to our friendships, to the way we parent our kids, to the way that we relate to everyone else. We are sort of obsessed with this idea of a grand gesture. And this idea has seeped into our faith as well. When you and I think about how we are supposed to approach God, how we are supposed to interact with God, we oftentimes think about it in terms of making some sort of grand gesture. Well, I'm going to do something big for Jesus. I'm going to do something heroic. Or, on the other side of that, some of us think, well, I've never done anything heroic for Jesus, so I guess I'm not a good Christian. I've never had this big moment where, you know, I stood up in the middle of the classroom and defended... We, we, don't, we, we don't have that story, and so we go, I guess, I guess I'm not a good Christian. Whether, whether we're trying to have that big moment for Jesus, whether we're guilty because we haven't, what both of those ideas show us is that the way that we approach God is sort of obsessed with this idea of a grand gesture. 
And the difficulty is that when we begin to think of our faith in those terms, when we begin to think of our faith in terms of a grand gesture, uh, most of us fall short. When we begin to think of our faith in terms of being heroic, we run into problems. Because our faith isn't always heroic. Even those of us who are Christians, it's rarely heroic, honestly. And in fact, it's more often than not plagued with doubts. Do I really believe this? Is God really good? Is God who he says he is? Is God with me? These questions ring in the back of our head. And we try to make up for, well, maybe, maybe if I made the grand gesture, maybe if I did the big thing, maybe if I was more radical, then I would feel Jesus more. And so we give it a try. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. The difficulty is, is that it's hard for us to admit that our lives are not one heroic gesture to God after another but are rather this everyday mix of faith and doubt. Last week, we talked about the story of Gideon. And Gideon was a man who was was called by God. God said, I want you to lead my people. And he sort of uh, offered a sacrifice to God. And God said, yes, you are my man. You are the one who's going to save my people from, remember last week we talked about the herds and herds of cattle that were eating everything they had. And so here's Gideon, this guy who was scared, this guy who was, was trying to make wheat in a wine press. And God comes to him and says, you're going to lead my people. And what we're going to see this week is sort of Gideon's on-again, off-again faith. Because Gideon's faith, like ours, was far from perfect. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you the second half of Judges chapter 6, the, the second part of Gideon's story. And so if you would, stand up with me. We're going to read Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 25. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll have it up here on the screen. And so let's read the next part of the story of Gideon. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah pole that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that he had built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. 
That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of Lord of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizites were called out to follow him. And he sent messages throughout all of Manasseh, and they were called out to follow him. And he sent messages to Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew to fill the fleece, or from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just one more with the once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly three thousand years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So Gideon's story starts with him being cowardly and God saying, you are a mighty man. And then God says to him, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut down the altar to these false gods that are in your backyard. I want you to go and cut down the altar to Baal and I want you to cut down the altar the Asherah pole. Now, these gods that they worshipped, uh, Baal and Asherah, um, were agricultural and fertility gods. The idea behind them was is that Baal was the one who gave rain to your crops. He was the god of the storms. And so, really, when you think about it, he wasn't just a god of storms. What he was, was he was the one who was driving the economy. Because if you live in an agricultural economy, how do you make money? When your crops grow. Right? Crops feed your animals, the crops feed you, this is how you do it. And Asherah was a fertility god. And so her pole would um, be not safe for work for us to show. Uh, It was a a giant statue of a woman um, with, well, it was a giant statue of a woman that had a lot of anatomy on it. And they prayed to her because she provided fertility so that they could have more children honestly, to work their farms so that their animals would have more children, so that they would have more things. And God says to Gideon, here's what I want you to do. Now that you believe me, I want you to go and I want you to tear down the altar to Baal, tear down the pole that was in the backyard that symbolizes Asherah, and I want you to break them down and rebuild them as an altar to me. There's something in here about the way that when we begin to follow Jesus, it is most difficult on some of the relationships that we are closer to. Because where was this altar? It was literally in Gideon's backyard. And the way that the text reads, it seems like his dad was the local priest of Baal and Asherah. And God says, you, you, know, your, you know your dad's altar? You know your dad's Asherah pole? I want you to take one of your dad's bulls 
and tear it down and then kill your dad's bull, which was like a Lexus, right? Bulls were very expensive. I want you to take your dad's Lexus, your dad's bull, and then you're going to use the wood from the pole that you cut down and burn it up. So Gideon's going to make the big heroic act. He's going to be the hero that runs in there. He's going to kiss the girl in the rain. Except Gideon is scared. So what does Gideon do? Guys, guys, let's do this at night. When nobody can see us and everybody's asleep, that's when we're going to do it. Why? Because he was afraid of his dad and he was afraid of the townspeople. And so, but, so he does it. He's obedient, not necessarily heroic. And the people wake up. And they look around and they go, wait a minute. Where's our old altar to Baal? Where's that Asherah pole that we used to have around here? Why is there a new altar and a bunch of burnt logs and the stench of bull around? Hey, something happened last night. So they start asking around, who did this? Who did this? And does Gideon make the heroic act and stand up and said, I did this because you're worshiping false gods. It was me. No, no, no. You almost can hear Gideon sort of sliding backward into the hedges, right? But he took ten men with him. And there's an old saying that says, if there's a secret among ten men, there is no secret. Somebody, somebody flips on Gideon. Somebody rats him out. And they come to his house and they say, Joash, you need to bring your son out because we're going to kill him because of what he did. And his dad does something really interesting. His dad flips. His dad says, wait a minute. If Baal is any sort of God, if Baal is really a God, can Baal defend himself? If he's really a God, he could probably kill Gideon if he wanted to, right? But Baal had a lightning bolt in one of his hands. He could have thrown it, Zeus style, at Gideon if he really was a god. Okay, let's stop here for a second. Because on the one hand, it would be really easy for you and I to hear the story, especially the story up to this point, and go, well, that's nice. This reminds me of those old stories of Greek mythology. This kind of has nothing to do with me because I don't have any altars in my backyard. Closest thing I've got is a fire pit. I have zero Asherah poles in my possession. None. So, I'm good. This story isn't about me. The difficulty is, is that while you and I may be slightly more sophisticated, we fall prey to the same thing. As they worshipped Baal and Asherah, what they were really chasing was pleasure, success, relationships, and freedom. Pleasure, success, relationships, and freedom. How often do those four things become our functional gods? Whether we're a Christian or not. Whether we have faith in one religion or another, more often than not, those four things become our functional gods. Let me just sort of walk through and think through these things with you. Think about the way that we worship pleasure. In, in St. Pete, we do this really well. 
Why? Because we have the best food, the best drink, the most fun, the most gorgeous outdoors. We have all of the things that pleasure can give us at our fingertips. And when we worship pleasure, what we think is, if I could just have this experience, I will be happy. And so what do we do? We chase food. We go to the next restaurant that just opened up. We go to the latest brewery. We try to have the best sex. We chase after pleasure with everything that's inside of us. And what pleasure does is it says, listen, put away your future for this moment. Give away your future because this is going to be the moment that's going to make you happy. And so what do we do? We run up debt on our credit card to go to those nice restaurants. We sacrifice our dignity and shame the next morning so that we can try to capture happiness through sex. We think if we just had this fun this weekend, maybe it'll make my work week better next week. But what inevitably inevitably happens with all of those things? The food leaves us hungry. You can go to Nidalee's and you can order Nidalee's food, which none of you can finish on your own. And you eat Nidalee's and you're hungry again in 12 hours. You've traded. You, you, we think that it's going to fulfill us, but it never does, does it? There's always that newer restaurant with that better food. There's always a hoppier beer out there. We always think that our next sexual encounter will be the one that will make us happy. And we keep chasing them. We keep chasing them. And we keep thinking, okay, yeah, it didn't work last time, but this time, this time I'm actually going to be happy. And we're trading our future for this moment of happiness. And as soon as it's over, the future comes rushing in. Every Sunday night at midnight, it becomes Monday. We in St. Pete know really well what it is to work hard and play hard. But what we're doing is we're chasing the God of pleasure. And he's never going to fulfill us. He is always going to let us down. We're always going to be left wanting as we chase. But in the face of that, what God says to us is this. I'm, I came to give you joy. Not happiness. There's a difference. Happiness is right now. Joy is a long time. Happiness is a point in time. Joy is a continuous thing. Jesus says, I have come to give you true joy. It's not this moment. It's not you trading this moment of something that's going to leave you unfulfilled. It is a life of joy. It says in the Psalms that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But what you and I do is we end up worshiping pleasure in the moment. We do the same thing with success, right? How many of us think, when I just get the next promotion... When my startup just gets to the new revenue cap, if I just made, if I just got a raise and made $5,000 more a year, then I would be happy. 
just, just I'm not asking I'm not asking for a big just five thousand dollars more a year and I would be happy. And so what do we do? We sacrifice our family, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our health chasing success. Anything, anything so that I could get that promotion. Anything so that I could get that raise. And what do we find? As soon as we get the raise, Uncle Sam comes by and takes his chunk of it and we're left with our pay stub and our bills going, yeah, but the next $5,000 raise, that's going to be the one. I thought it was the last $5,000 raise. It's actually the next one. And we keep chasing it. When we, when we get that promotion, we find out that all of that work that we had to put in, all of that work where we said, you know, once I get this promotion, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be able to spend more time with my kids. We find out that the effort required to get the promotion is the same effort that the job now requires of us. And we chase it. And we chase it. And what do we know? When we get that job, some of you have experienced this, when you finally get the job that you thought, when my title is this, then I'll be happy, what happens? It's not. Every time. Every time we worship the God of success, we are let down. And yet Jesus says to us, I'm not worried about your success. I'm not worried about making you successful. What I'm worried about is making you content. And there is a huge gap between success and contentedness. Some of us do fine with pleasure. Some of us don't worship the God of success, but we chase a relationship. Whether it's with our kids, with a friend, with a spouse, whoever it is, we're chasing this relationship. And that's what we worship. And, and that relationship tells us, whispers in our ear, just, just, it doesn't matter about anything else. Make sure this relationship works. Make sure this person knows you and loves you. And inevitably, they fail us. They hurt us. They let us down again and again and again. And what do we do? We try to grasp tighter. You know what? I, I know that my wife and I have been fighting, but if I, just, if I just work harder at it, then I'll be happy. If I just work a little bit harder on my marriage, it'll be happy. And then we get hurt again. And it devastates us. We're wrecked. And so what do we do? We grasp tighter. Because when we make a relationship our God, what we're doing is asking another person to be our Savior. You need to be the one that accepts me. You need to be the one that loves me. I need love and acceptance from you, and if I don't have it, I'm going to force it. And while we chase this, what ends up happening is we end up estranging everyone else in our life. We do the same thing with freedom. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do or what to believe. In fact, if somebody tells me what to do, if somebody tells me what to believe, I'm going to cut them out of my circle. Most of us uh, who are on social media have become very familiar with the mute button in the past few months. For one reason or another, no matter where you are, there, there is a statistic that I saw that Facebook has seen more muting, more unfollowing of friends in the past six months than in the history of Facebook up to this point. 
about that. You have unfollowed and muted more friends probably in the past six months for whatever reason, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, no matter whether you're muting people because they're talking about politics or not po- talking about politics, whatever, whatever your beef is, people are going, I don't want to hear that. I don't, <laughs> I don't care about your opinion anymore. Because when, when we're chasing freedom, when freedom is our ultimate God, What we have to do is slowly cut our circles tighter and tighter. We have to cut more and more people out of our life because because they're bothering us by impinging on our freedoms. And so more and more, my community, the people that I spend time with, the people that I listen to online, start to look more and more like me. And instead of having a rich community of diverse opinions... My life, not just my social media, but my life becomes homogenous. Becomes everybody the same. Because those people are the people that aren't going to impinge on my freedom. And eventually we're let down because it's unfulfilling. Because when everybody thinks like you, and everybody acts like you, and nobody's impinging my freedom, what do I have left? I have an echo chamber. You see, what happens is you and I, every one of us, not your friends, not the other person that you're thinking about, right? Because it's really easy for us to go, oh yeah, I, I know somebody who worships relationships. I know, I know that person. That, get him, Justin. <laughs> you tell him. No, what's, what's probably true is all of us struggle with all four of these things, myself included. But there's probably one of them. Our seeking pleasure success, relationships, freedom that really sticks out to us. That's what we're really chasing in life. Here's what's beautiful about this passage. God is not going to let it continue. For his people, he comes and says, I am going to tear down those things in your life. And when he does, it is hard When God says, I am going to fix the fact that you worship this relationship and not me, it can get ugly. When God says, I am going to stop letting you worship pleasure, it can be terrifying. And yet God says, because I love you, I'm not going to let it keep going. And so Gideon tears down this altar. And here's what's interesting. He tears down this altar. The people at first are super hostile towards Gideon. And yet what happens next? The bad guys come in. The camel riders come in. And Gideon says, I'm going to go to the spot where we're going to battle them. And who are the first people to show up? His neighbors from his hometown. Isn't it interesting that the people that wanted to kill him for tearing down their idols... When he says we need to fight for Yahweh God, who are the first people in line? His neighbors. Because while on the one hand, we are more broken than we care to admit. We are more idolatrous. Whether we're a Christian or not, pleasure, success, relationships, freedom, we chase those things. And Jesus says, I'm not going to let you. I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to bring change. And so he does. And so he does. And so God amasses this huge 
army around Gideon. This guy that was cowardly in the wine press, that was tearing down altars by night, all of a sudden has an army that's half of the nation of Israel surrounding him. And we would expect now's the time. Now is the time where Gideon's going to make the grand gesture, where Gideon's going to do the big thing. He has thousands of men around him overlooking the valley where the bad guys are. And what does Gideon do? He gets real nervous. He gets real dowdy. He says, God, I, I know that you said, I know that you said, he said twice, as you said, I know that you said that you're going to rescue Israel by my hand. But I just want to make sure, God. I just, I just want to be certain. So here's what I want. I'm going to lay a fleece out on the ground. And as I lay the fleece out on the ground, here's what I want. I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. God says, I can do that. Gideon wakes up the next morning. You know, it's almost cartoony the way it sort of says. He, he rang out the fleece and filled an entire bowl, right? You can almost see the montage of Gideon. And does Gideon go, oh, a, a miracle. The entire ground was dry except for my little fleece. Let's go get him. No, Gideon says, okay, okay, God, thank you. Um, and don't be mad at me, but can we try this again? And this time, I want the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. How about that? Can we do that this time? And here's what's so amazing about this story and so comforting to you and I. God does it. God does it. Gideon is, he is weak. Gideon is doubting. God has done everything he can for Gideon. And Gideon's still going, ah, one more thing. And here's the beauty of God. He doesn't. Why? Because God loves us as his children. And Gideon is taking these baby steps of faith. God tells him to tear down the altar. He tears down the altar, but he does it at night. God rescues him from the town people. He sends an army around him, and Gideon says, Okay, I, I know that you said it. Would you just help me with my faith? It reminds me of the man who came to Jesus, whose son was sick, and said, Jesus, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, If you believe, anything is possible. And the man says, Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. More often than not, that ought to be your cry and mine. Because we don't find ourselves making these big heroic acts, doing these grand gestures. What our faith looks like, more often than not, is baby steps, is small decisions is a little bit more trust in God. A little bit more turning away from pleasure, success, from relationships that we've made our only thing, and from freedom at all cost. There's something else interesting in this passage, which is this. The sacrifice comes first, and the change of the people comes second. Gideon sacrifices the bull. 
And only after the sacrifice is made do the people begin to turn around and turn in faith to God. Now, that's not just a piece of trivia. That's instructive about how the way God works. Because you and I, on our own, we are all too trapped in the way that we worship pleasure, success, relationships, and freedom. We're all too trapped in that to get ourselves out. And so God says, I know that. I know that your faith is too small. I know that your wills are too weak. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Jesus. I'm going to send Jesus to you. And he's going to make the sacrifice before you know that you need it. And so God stands and says, Jesus' sacrifice was enough. And I'm going to rejoice in your baby steps. I have a a one-year-old son, and he is starting to take his first steps. And what happens? I mean, when he, like, shuffles his feet without holding on to anything, like, our entire house erupts in applause. He gets a standing ovation for not falling over. (laughs) I should be so lucky, right? And yet, that joy of a child taking his first step, just literal baby steps, is the same joy that God looks down on you and I with. Why? Because our sacrifice has been made for us by Jesus. Our sacrifice has been paid. Our our worship of all four of those things has been blotted out by the red blood of Jesus. So that as we take these baby steps of faith in response to what he has already done, God jumps up in the air. He throws his arms up and says, yes, yes, look, yes, this. This is what I'm talking about. Not the grand gesture. Not the kiss in the rain. Not the bouquet of 72 roses. The baby steps. The small things. So what are those small things for us today? For some of us, it may just be taking time and acknowledging the ways that we worship pleasure, success, freedom, and relationships. Of taking the small moment and confessing to God, God, that's me. That's my functional God, not you. For others of us, maybe it's just to celebrate our baby steps. Maybe it's just to, to, to turn to God and say, God, You have been working in my life. I have been struggling and you have given me this small baby step. And God says, yes, I rejoice with you in that. Wherever you're at this morning, Jesus celebrates your baby steps and calls you out of the way that you worship things that aren't him. Let's pray.